All right, turn to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. If you've been tracking with us, then you know that we've been going back through the Bible, looking at as many familiar stories and Bible characters as we possibly can. But we've been going a little bit deeper because we're wanting to grow in our knowledge of the Word. Um, And, you know, 2022 is all about fortifying our faith. So we are on mission this year. For the past few weeks, we've been in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, and we've been looking at the life of people like Samuel, uh, Saul, David, and talking about how the mental, emotional, moral, ethical, honorable qualities of who we are, our character, will either carry us to Or keep us from our calling. And I've had quite a few people um, just come to me on the side and say, Pastor Tony, these last couple messages um, have been really, really good. Really, really encouraging. Which I'm like, thank you. What about all the other hundred? (laughs) Seriously, I appreciate that kind of encouragement. But I got to tell you, it's all right there. Like, it's it's there. You don't need me to give it to you. All you got to do is go and read it for yourself. There's a lot there. Okay, there's a lot to read, but it's a good read. Amen. So go and read this stuff on your own. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we looked at one of the Bible projects overviews of first Samuel. Okay, and it was great, nice and clear and concise. And so let's go ahead and check out this overview of second Samuel. The book of 2 Samuel. Check out the video on 1 Samuel where we were introduced to the book's three main characters, Samuel, Saul, and David, and then also to the book's literary design, which first introduced Samuel and then traced the rise and fall of King Saul in contrast to the rise of King David. 2 Samuel tells the story of David as Israel's king and in two movements. There's a season of success and a blessing, followed by a huge moral failure and then its sad consequences. And then the book ends with this well-crafted conclusion that reflects back on the good and the bad in David's life, generating hope for a future king to come from his line. So 2 Samuel picks up after Saul's death, and David surprises everyone by composing this long poem where he laments the death of the very man who tried to murder him. And so once again, the author, he's presenting David's humility and compassion. He's a man who grieves the death even of his own enemies. After this, David experiences a season of success and God's blessing. All of the Israelite tribes, they come to David and then they ask him to unify all the tribes as their king. And so the first thing David does as king is to go to the city of Jerusalem. He conquers it and he establishes it as Israel's capital city, which he renames as Zion. And from there, David goes on and he wins many battles and expands Israel's territory. Now, after making Jerusalem the political capital of Israel, he wants to make it their religious capital as well. And so he has the Ark of the Covenant moved into the city. And then in 2 Samuel 7, he tells God, now that Israel has a permanent home, he thinks that God's presence should also get a permanent house. So he asks if he can build a temple for the God of Israel. But God says to David, thank you for that thought, but actually I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty. Now, 
2 Samuel 7, this is a key chapter for understanding the storyline of the whole Bible. Because God here makes a promise to David that from his royal line will come a future king who's going to build God's temple here on earth and set up an eternal kingdom. And it's this messianic promise to David that gets picked up and developed more in the book of Psalms and also in the books of the prophets. And it's this king that gets connected to God's promise to Abraham, the future messianic kingdom will be how God brings his blessing to all of the nations. And it's right here in the midst of all this divine blessing that things go horribly wrong. David makes a fatal mistake, not fatal for him, but for a man named Uriah, one of David's prized soldiers. So from his rooftop, David sees Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, bathing. David finds her, he sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, and then he tries to cover the whole thing up by having Uriah assassinated and then marrying her. It's just horrible. So when David's confronted by the prophet Nathan about all of this, he immediately owns up to what he's done. He's broken, he repents, he asks God to forgive him, and God does forgive him, but God doesn't erase the consequences of David's decisions. And so as a result of this horrible choice, David's family, his kingdom, it all falls apart. And it makes this section a tragic story, much like Saul's downfall. So David's sons end up repeating his own mistakes, but in even more tragic ways. So Amnon sexually abuses his sister Tamar, and then their brother Absalom finds out about all of this and has Amnon assassinated. And then Absalom goes and he hatches the secret plan to oust his father David from power, and he launches this full-scale rebellion. And so for a second time, David is forced to flee from his own home and go hide in the wilderness, except this time he is not an innocent man. The rebellion ends when David's son is murdered, when it breaks David's heart. And so once again, he laments over the very man who tried to kill him. David's last days find him back on his throne, but as a broken man, he's wounded by the sad consequences of his sin. The book concludes with a well-crafted epilogue, with stories that are out of chronological order, but they have this really cool symmetrical literary design. So the outer pair of stories come from earlier in David's reign, and they compare the failures of Saul and then of David, and how each of them hurt other people through their bad decisions. The next inner pair of stories are about David and his band of mighty men who went about fighting the Philistines. And what's interesting is that both sections have a story of David's weakness in battle. So in contrast to the victorious David of chapters 1 through 9, here we see a vulnerable David who's dependent on others for help. The center of the epilogue has two poems that act like memoirs, and David reflects back on his life. And he remembers times when God graciously rescued him from danger. And he sees these as moments where God was faithful to his covenant promise to him and to his family. Both poems conclude by looking back onto the hope of God's promise of a future king who will build that eternal kingdom. Now these poems and then God's promise also connect back to Hannah's poem that opened the book. And so these key passages from the beginning, now the middle, and the end of the book bring the book's themes all together. Despite Saul and David's evil, God remained at work moving forward his redemptive purposes. And God opposed David and Saul's arrogance, but he exalted David when he humbled himself. And so the future hope of this book reaches far beyond David himself. It looks to the future, to the messianic king who will one day bring God's kingdom and blessing to all of the nations. And that's what the book of Samuel is all about. 
All right. Did you guys get all that? Can you repeat it back to me? <laughs> they do do a good job of making it concise and very clear, right? Love those things. This weekend, we're going to spend another week on David. Okay, David is the man that God chose to replace Saul as king. If you'll remember, Saul was an insecure and fearful leader. And those fears were the foundation for the character flaws that led to faithless decisions. And those decisions are what caused him to have to forfeit his calling. For the most part, David's story is the exact opposite. David's character is impeccable, okay? Consistently honorable. He was faithful. We talked about last week how he was fearless. But just like we saw in this overview, David was not perfect. What I want to do is I want to look at three times in David's life when he fell short of his man after God's own heart reputation. And let me just clarify this morning. I'm talking to the men. Okay, women, I'm glad you're here. It's going to be a good morning for you too. You need to pay attention because this all applies to everyone. But men, I'm specifically talking to you. And so I want you to listen. I'm going to start by giving you this whole sermon in one sentence. And that's this. Everyone around you suffers when you don't show up. Everyone around you, one way or the other, suffers when you don't show up. The message this weekend is titled Perfect Attendance. You can write these things down. Perfect attendance. How, how many perfect attendance people do we have in this room? Like growing up at school, you got the perfect attendance award like all the time. Raise your hand if that was you. Okay, we have a few. Last night, we were a bunch of people, so they were perfect attenders. So for me, I, got, I actually got that. Believe it or not, I got that award a few times in school. You're like, no way. You're just a cut up. You probably skip school all the time. I skipped school a few times for sure. But I actually liked being at school. I didn't like the work, but I had other motivators. I loved playing on the playground. I liked um, flirting with the girls, you know, all the things. All right. So I loved being at school. You, you, if you're going to have perfect attendance, you've got to have a motivator. Men, if you are currently not showing up, and I think before I even go into any of this, you kind of already know what I mean when I say showing up. If you're not currently showing up, you've got to find a motivator. There's got to be something that motivates you to be there, to have perfect attendance. It should be the Lord. The Lord should be our motivator to be the very best that we can be in any role that we're um, placed in. And maybe you're not there. Maybe it's like, I just, my relationship with the Lord, I don't even have that kind of relationship with the Lord. He's not necessarily my motivator. Okay, you'll get there. But what about your wife? Do you love your wife enough for her to be a motivator for you? Or your kids? You want better for your kids? I want my kids to have more than I had. I want them to have a better situation. Whatever it is, you've got to have a motivator if you want to have perfect attendance. So let's talk about three areas David didn't show up. Okay. I'm going to give you three areas and there's a few more, but we, we have to kind of keep it simple. Three areas. David didn't show up. 
Number one, David was absent of the word. Now listen to me. By and large, David greatly valued the word. We know that. That's where his impeccable character came from. But there was a situation where he didn't look to the word of the Lord and it got someone killed. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Last week we talked about how David valued the presence of God. We talked about how David was a powerful warrior because first he was an authentic worshiper. We talked about how David fearlessly defeated Goliath because he was faithfully devoted to God. David was fearlessly faithful because he prioritized the presence of God in his life. And when he finally becomes king, <laughs> after 10 plus years of running from King Saul, hiding in caves, <laughs> like for me, I've been running and hiding for 10 years. First thing I do when I become king, I'm going on vacation. I'm grabbing my wife and kids. We headed to the mountains or something. I've been sleeping on the hard rocks in a cave. No, but not David. The first thing he does is he brings the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. It's a long story, but the Philistines took it. And then they got sick from having it. God gave them tumors. A wild story. Read it. And so they quickly returned it. And it goes back to a man named Abinadab, his house. The ark rested in the house of Abinadab. And Abinadab's son, Eleazar, guarded it for the next 20 years. David's top priority when he becomes king is to bring the ark of the covenant which represented, literally, more than represented, it, it, for them it was the power and the presence of God. His first priority was to bring the presence of God back into Jerusalem, back to the people. And so he gathers 30 of his best troops. Sorry, 30,000. That's a big difference. So he gathers 30,000 of his greatest warriors, his best troops, and he goes to get it. Second Samuel chapter 6, starting in verse 3, it says that they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart, bringing with it the ark of God. And Ahio was walking in front of the cart. David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of wood instruments and harps and stringed instruments, tambourines, sistrums, cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, now Melissa and I have been to this exact place in Israel. We have some friends that at that time, they were running a hotel in this area of Israel called Abu Ghosh, just outside of Jerusalem. Okay, and uh, almost 100% Muslim city, just right there outside of Israel. And so this whole place where this scene goes down, my wife and I have been there. And this is actually one of my favorite scenes in Scripture. And so it's a, it was such a treasure to be able to stand on the ground where this happens. It says, when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, 
And God struck him down on the spot for his irreverence. And he died there beside the ark of God. And then David became angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And so he named that place Perez Uzzah, as it is called to this day. Okay, so David is angry. But he's angry because he is confused. Like he thought he was doing a good thing. It says in verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Now, this is a question that David should have asked before he goes out to retrieve the ark of the covenant. How can it come to me? You should have thought about that before you went. Uzzah died because he touched the ark. In Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, gives explicit instructions on how to handle the Ark of the Covenant. And since the Ark had been put in Uzzah's house for 20 years, Uzzah most likely should have known better, right? I mean, that stands to reason. He should have known better to reach out and touch that thing. It's interesting that Uzzah's name means strength. Men... Maybe in this story, the Lord's trying to teach us, don't do things in your own strength. I cannot be the only one in this room who consistently struggles with doing things in my own strength. Am I the only one? No. And I'm not just talking to the men there. I'm talking about to the ladies. We all struggle with that. Don't do things in your own strength. It's also interesting that Uzzah's brother, Ahio, his name means brotherly. So men, maybe another thing that the Lord's trying to teach us in this story is y'all got to watch out for each other. Pay attention. Keep your eyes. Watch each other. Have each other's back. Like maybe Ohio should have been like, Uza, back up, man. You're too close. You're going to get killed. You know what the Bible says. Don't touch it. You're going to die. <laughs> right? Man, how many times have I stayed quiet when I saw something in someone's life and then they end up falling into sin and I regret not saying anything because a simple conversation could have been their rescue. We've got to be brotherly people. But the greatest failure that day on the threshing floor of Nikon was David's. David should have done his homework, but he didn't. He was absent of the word. If he would have just taken the time to read the scrolls, to search the scriptures, he would have learned that only the Levites could transport the ark. And when they do, they had to use poles and put them through these little rings that were literally built into the ark of the covenant and transport it that way. Otherwise, Somebody was going to suffer. Again, David wasn't normally absent of the word. But men, most of us are. Most men struggle to spend time reading and studying the word of God. We just don't prioritize it. We spend very little time, if any in the word of God. 
I know this to be true, and I talk to lots of men. We need more of the Word of God. We need to show up in the Word of God. We don't need to be absent of the Word of God. Anyway, so David brings 30,000 warriors instead of priests. And he builds this brand new cart instead of carving up some new poles to transport the ark that way. And they just roll on. They just be singing and dancing and having a good old time, shouting, praising God. All the while, God's like, he's just shaking his head. The people don't even realize their lack of fear and reverence. And we can't judge because we can be the same way. We stroll in late to church because we had to hit Starbucks on the way. Now we're singing and we're shouting. We got one hand lifted and sipping our coffee in the other hand. Right? right? We're taking sips between each stanza of the song. God is holy. And we forget that. And we think that we can carry his presence. We can carry the presence of God like, like the world does. But we can't. We have to stop and we've got to prepare our, our hearts. And we have to ask the Lord, how can the ark of the Lord, how can the presence of God come to me? What does fear and reverence look like for me today? David thought he was doing a good thing. And it was a good thing. But even when you're doing a good thing, you have to do it God's way. Isn't that right? Verse 10 says, so David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city. He's, gonna, he's, he's like, stop. Everybody just stop. Something's up. He would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom's house. During that three months, you know David was like, y'all bring me my Bible. <laughs> we got to figure out how to get this thing down into the city. And they bring him his Bible. He reads and he figures it out. In fact, if you, if you, um, if you read further, when you get to First Chronicles chapter 15, he says, because the Levites did not carry the ark the first time, the anger of the Lord burst out against us. He says, we failed to ask God how to properly move it. So he admits that he was absent of the word of God that day. So David learns the right way to steward the presence of the Lord. And then he gets the ark and he brings it back into Jerusalem and it was awesome. This is the scene where David danced before the Lord with nothing on but his drawers. All he had on was his underwear. They call it an ephod, but don't church it up. That was his underwear, y'all. He's out there dancing in his underwear. It says that his wife, Micah, was just completely embarrassed. In fact, it says that she despised him for doing that. But David says to her, you know what? I will become even more undignified than this. 
And I'm just thinking about the men in the house. And I'm thinking, men, there is a lesson here. When you are a man who shows up in the word and you show up in worship with God at the center of your worship and you know that your heart is right before the Lord, you're able to worship without concern of what people around you think. Because it ain't about them. It's about God. Amen? Okay, let's keep going. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is about David's failure with Bathsheba. And most of us know this one. David and Bathsheba is almost as popular of a story as David and Goliath. Because this is where everyone is just shocked. They're reading this and all of a sudden they're like, what? This is our David, our David, the man after God's own heart. And what we read is that he falls into sexual immorality and commits murder. How does something like that happen? Second Samuel 11 opens up. Well, it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. You got to catch this. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings should be going out to battle. But David remained at Jerusalem. David is about to fall into a depth of sin that no one could have ever imagined, including himself. And the reason that he does is because for some reason in this season, David was absent in the battle. At that time and in that part of the world, it was understood among warring nations that during the wet and cold seasons, we're going to push pause on the war. Okay? It's, it was just too hard on the soldier. It's like, we'll start killing everybody. We'll start killing each other when the good weather comes back around. All right? We'll pick it up then. You know? Let's push pause. Nobody dies until it gets warm. Okay? So now it's spring. The weather is good, clears up, and it's time to re-engage in the battle. In the war against the Syrians and the Ammonites in 2 Samuel Chapter 10, God seems to establish a pattern, okay? If David is present at the battle, they win. But if David is absent, they lose. It's like God was saying, David, you need to be at every battle. So already we know that something's up with David. It's not like David not to go out and fight. What was going on? David was absent in the physical battle because he was absent in the spiritual battle. And where does that leave him? 100% vulnerable. Verse 2 says, late one afternoon after his midday nap, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace and he looked out over the city and he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. 
he sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told, oh, that's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. That was something that they did cultural, culturally. When a woman, when she was done with her cycle, there was a, a, a cleansable, cleansing ritual that they would do. Well, what does this clue tell us? That when she went to David's house, she was not pregnant. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. <laughs> Bathsheba knew beyond a shadow of doubt that this baby belonged to David. There's no way it could belong to her husband Uriah because her husband Uriah was out in the battle where David was supposed to be. And so David's like, uh-oh. And he sends for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And he tries multiple times while he's home from the battle to get him to sleep with his wife, Bathsheba. But Uriah keeps refusing to be with his wife while all his buddies are still out at battle. I'm not going to do that. All my friends are out there risking their lives for the sake of Jerusalem, for the sake of our people. I'm not going to come home for a little break and be with my wife like that. That would dishonor everyone that I fight with. So this frustrates David. He's getting a little more worried. David gets desperate. And so he sends Uriah back out to battle. And he instructs Joab to station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. Then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. So now David's a murderer. When Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Did you, did you catch that clue? She became one of his wives. He had plenty of wives. David clearly had some sort of lust issues. Ain't no reason for him to be calling somebody in. He had plenty of extracurricular activities going at home. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Men, I know that there are very few murderers in the room. Okay. I thought there would be more laughter at that. <laughs> Maybe there are a few in the room. I don't know. This is a good weekend to start stationing our police officer outside, wasn't it? <laughs> Dang. I 
I know that none of you in this room are murderers, but here's what I do know. I know that sexual immorality is a struggle for a lot of guys. And it always will be, which is why we cannot afford to not show up to battle. Amen? Ephesians chapter 6, I've preached this so many times in so many different ways, upside down, backwards. I think I preached it in Spanish one time. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm when the schemes of the enemy come. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Y'all listening? Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist when the day of evil comes. You never know what day evil is going to come to you in a big way. And so you cannot take a day off. You've got to have perfect attendance. You can't be absent in the battle. Is everyone hearing me this morning? Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist when the day of evil comes. And having done everything to stand, stand firm then. And listen, you don't just show up. You fight. And you fight for your life. Amen? You tell yourself, I am not going down. I will be the last man standing. I will not let lust lead me. I will not let pornography pull me away. I refuse to let sexual immorality steal one more thing in my life. You rise up and you say, nope. Men, I don't know if we understand just how real the battle is. We're husbands and we're fathers. And that puts a massive target on our back because we are the leaders of the home. Our wives and our kids, they are counting on us to fight. And so we fight, not flesh and blood. I wish we could just duke it out. That would be way easier. But instead, we've got to learn how to pray. And we've got to learn how to worship. And we've got to learn how to read our Bible. And we've got to guard our character. You fight for integrity. And find accountability. Amen. And you may be thinking, well, actually, I'm doing pretty good, Pastor Tony. I appreciate your little sermon there. Awesome. I don't doubt that you're doing great. But what I'm also trying to tell you is that so was David. David always went out to battle. He always went out to battle. But this one time, he didn't. And he gets lured into things that no one ever could have imagined that he would do. Like I said, there was no need for David to go out and be sexually immoral. He had multiple wives. But something wasn't right. He wasn't showing up in the physical battle because he wasn't showing up in the spiritual battle, which means that he was vulnerable. And that is how the devil caused 
a man after God's own heart to fall. So I love that you're doing good, man. Love it. I'm glad you're doing good. I love that you're a man after God's own heart. But you're not Jesus. So you better be sure to show up. Are you with me? You cannot afford not to have perfect attendance. The only reason that David fell into temptation is because he wasn't where he was supposed to be. He was absent that day. If you know the story, you know that Nathan, the prophet, comes to David and confronts him, but he does it in kind of a smooth way. You know what I mean? He's like, hmm, I got this. Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. So the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich. The other was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb, just one little lamb that he had bought. He raised that little lamb, and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate. It drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arm like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock and herd, he goes to the poor man's house, takes his lamb and kills it and prepared it for his guest. And it says, David was furious. Are you kidding me right now? Why would anybody do that? What a jerk. Clearly this man is godless. And he goes on and on and on. Oh my God, he has a conniption. You know what I'm saying? You guys know what a conniption is? That's what David has. He has a conniption. And he says, as surely as the Lord lives, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. And he must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole in whom he had no pity. Nathan says, well, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel. And I saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdom of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. David, look at all that you have. Look around at what I've given you. And if that wasn't enough, all you had to do was ask, and I would have given you more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord? So technically, in this scene, he's absent of the word as well. Why have you done this horrible deed? And David breaks down, and he confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now let's just stop right here because there's a few things to be thankful for in this scene. Number one, thank God for a brother like Nathan to come and hold David accountable. Amen? Thank God that Nathan was willing to be brotherly that day. Thank God that David was still a man after God's own heart. 
confessed and repented. But most of all, we're thankful that God is rich in mercy. Amen. Nathan replied, yes, you did sin. But the Lord has forgiven you. And you won't die for this sin. But there is a consequence. Because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord, by doing this, your child will die. So the baby in Bathsheba's belly wasn't going to live. And we'll talk about that a little more maybe when we get to the story of King Solomon. But for now, I just want to boast in God's goodness. I want to rest right here in glory in the fact that God is merciful. Amen. He forgives. There's always consequences to our sins. That's for sure. We've all learned that. But thank the Lord that he renews our hearts. If you're familiar with Psalm 51, then you know that Psalm 51 is a song of David, and it's about his repentance from this failure and how God renews his heart and David renews his devotion to the Lord. I want to give you one more. So number three, write this down, and I'm not going to preach long on this because there's way too much content for me to actually cover. But David was also absent in the home. He was absent in the home. Last week we talked about how David was fearlessly faithful. But there seems to be one area where he was afraid. He seems to be afraid of his kids. To call them out. To discipline them. To have the hard conversations with them when they're acting crazy. When his kids were doing what kids do. You guys know what kids do. We all know. You kids everywhere around him, around here. Right? I got four of them. Y'all got 20 of them. Everybody's got six kids. What's the deal? Okay. Let kids be kids. And we be fathers. You understand what I'm saying? Men, fathers, your wife shouldn't be taking the lead on disciplining your kids. I'm not saying she can't do that, that. That's not part of her job description. But you are the lead discipliner in the house. Stand up and take care of business. Don't leave it to your wife. That's why your kids are crazy. Not that your wife's not a good discipliner, but nobody carries the authority in a home like a father. Rise up and discipline your kids. David was absent at home, and I'm seeing more and more and more. And it's been this way a long time. And I thought there was possibly a swing coming to where fathers were going to rise up, but I'm actually seeing fathers becoming more and more distracted with stuff. Men, not just being absent in the home, but leaving the home, losing their minds. Divorcing their wives, being willing to leave their kids. And they never thought that would happen. 
Why did it happen? Because somewhere down the road, the devil came in on a day of evil. And that day, they were absent in the battle. And they didn't fight. And they were lured into something that compounded and got worse to the point where now they're leaving the home. Well, Pastor Tony, I appreciate your sermon. You really do bring it up there. But I'm telling you, I'm all right. You don't know when the day of evil is coming. Are you with me? Do not be absent in the home. Rise up. Be the father you were supposed to be. Be the husband you are supposed to be. It's hard. I know. I've been doing that for 28 years. And I've been a father for over 22. It's hard. And I have not always been perfectly present in the home. There have been great seasons where, regrettably, I have been absent in the home and absent in the Bible, and absent in the Word. I'm not up here telling you to be or do something that I myself haven't learned personally. But I'm telling you, I have found that most men are just one day of evil away from losing it all. So I'm asking you, I'm challenging you, admonishing you, charging you, rise up. Try to have perfect attendance in all these areas. Perfect attendance at home. You read the rest of 2 Samuel. You get the full picture. I don't have time to cover it all. But in short, David's oldest son, Amnon, rapes David's daughter, Tamar. Tamar goes and tells another brother, Absalom. Absalom is beside himself ticked. And he tells her to stay quiet about it. And he brings her into her. His house takes care of her. Second Samuel 13 says that David was, when he heard about it, he was very angry. That's what it says. And that's all it says. Meaning David did not do anything to Amnon. He did not take care of the situation. He was absent that day. And for the next two years. And that brood and Absalom. And it says that two years later, Absalom kills Amnon. So now Absalom, his son, is a murder, murderer, just like his father. Absalom didn't have to become a murderer. And he wouldn't have if David hadn't been absent in the home. Eventually, Absalom tries to overthrow David. Now David's running again. He's running from his own. He is back in caves sleeping on uh, rocks for pillows again. Running from his son. Running from his son. That's insane. It's insane to run from your son. But that's what happens. And then later, one of his other sons, Adonijah, does the exact same thing. You get the picture and you can read more of his failure as a father. His absence in the home. I'm trying to tell you, and I'll wrap this up. Let's go back to the beginning. Everyone around you suffers when you don't show up. So, men, I'm just challenging you this weekend. Try to get that perfect attendance award. And remember, I, I tell you constantly, nobody's perfect. Jesus is perfect. Nobody's perfect. So the goal is really to be consistent. And the, what I have found is the more consistent you become, the better you get. You'll never be Jesus. But becoming like Jesus is the goal. 
right? Back to what's your motivation? You make becoming like Christ, Christ-like, which is what it means to be a Christian. So if you're here and I'm a Christian, do you really know what that means? Because that means to look like Jesus. So if that's your motivation, that's your goal, you are not going to have any trouble receiving that perfect attendance award. Well done, my good and faithful son, husband, father. Everyone to close their eyes and just bow your head. What I want to do is just want to spend a second quiet. I would imagine that the Holy Spirit is tugging on the hearts of every man in this room, even the ones that are yet husbands and fathers, because we all will be. You may be here and you may hear this message and it may be reminding you that you have been absent. You might be young in your family and you just don't know how to get there. You may be older in the room and you are fully aware that you never got there. You just do what David does. When Nathan the prophet came, made him aware of what was going on, he didn't rise up with pride. He lowered himself in humility, confessed and repented. Husbands, you may be in the room and it's time for you to repent to your wife, to the Lord and to your wife. It might be time for you to pull your kids aside and say, I'm sorry that I've been absent. And then just change things. Get back to being that man after God's own heart that God so loves about you. And then remember, God is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Our wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is that advocate that stands between us and the Father. He forgives our sin and then he separates us from our sin as far as the east is from the west and remembers it no more. And that's what Psalm 51 is about. So I want you to really just relax your heart. Get your mind ready to listen. Your soul, your inner man ready to receive. And I want to read Psalm 51 over you. The prayer of David after his failure with Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity 
and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the inner hidden parts. You will make known to me wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, is what you love. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Lord, I pray for everyone here. I pray that they would hear the word, obey the word, pursue righteousness. I pray for every man in this room that you would deposit something mighty in them today. Lord, I pray that today they were reminded of what motivates them to be a man who shows up. And that we will begin seeing something stir in our community. We will see the fruit of their pursuit of you. And we're grateful that you are loving and kind and compassionate and slow to anger and rich in love. And we rejoice and we walk out of here knowing that you are for us, not against us. We praise you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.